This week, we just wrapped up a series in the book of Habakkuk, so that is now in the rearview mirror, but man, I loved, love, love that, that series walking through it. That was a blessing to me as I got to do a deep dive into, uh, into that, but uh, it's August, and for us in August, it means that we are launching into a new series, and that series is called Love Where You Live, um, and, uh, and we're excited about that because largely at FBH, we want to be, uh, be light and salt to the world in a very real way, and light and salt to the world is kind of a, a Christianese term that if you've been around church for a long time, you know light and salt, like, oh yeah, as Christians, we're supposed to be light and salt, salt and light, whatever, um, and, and we don't just just want to to say that we are light and salt. We don't just want to talk about it. We want to allow our actions to do some of the uh, the talking for us, some of the heavy lifting for us regarding how it is we are supposed to live the Christian life. Right? Salt and light, they're actually metaphors that we, we hear from Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 5, specifically in verses 13 and 16. But a lot of us forget that, uh, th- that these aren't just metaphors. These are, these are words from Jesus' lips, and he's using them in a, in a metaphorical way, but these are words from the Savior of the world. This is what it says. It says, you are the salt of the earth. He's talking, talking to, to, to Christians here. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So as we're kind of reading through this, we need to recognize that salt is, is both a way to enhance flavor, but more specifically at the time it was used as a preservative. And so what Jesus is saying here is that as Christians, our job is to make sure that the world doesn't spoil. And we do that by living lives of sacrifice, specifically lives of service. The second half is a little bit easier for us to understand because it kind of walks through this metaphor, that idea of a, a lamp on a, on a stand, Our responsibilities to the world is to allow the world to see and know the love of Jesus through both our words as well as our actions. So as we embark kind of on this new series that we're going to be walking through, I want to make you aware that for the next three weeks, we have chosen uh, four groups of people to serve in a very tangible way. Way and like I said, we do this every every single August. Jeff talked a little bit about some of the stuff that we have going on during the announcement time and that sort of thing. But tomorrow, I just want to make you aware. Tomorrow, we're we're taking a teacher's survival kit to a new teacher at Sierra Pacific High School. Right? I thought, oh, that's that's pretty cool. Um, and when I think like teacher survival kit, I'm like, do you, what do you get them? Like stickers and pens? Like that's all teachers need, right? Um, and so like as our, our women's ministry kind of said, yeah, hey, we'll take this. We'll take this on and we'll, we'll serve a, uh, a teacher specifically at Sierra Pacific. And so like I started hearing about like what the things that they were getting. And like one of them was like a, like a Stanley, you know, the Stanley water things that are like the cool things to have now. I was like, I want to be a teacher again. Like let me, let me be a teacher. Uh, but our women's ministry is largely heading that up mostly because we don't trust Jeff to make it look pretty um, and uh, so that's tomorrow on the 19th we're going to throw a, a free lunch and carnival and games and that sort of thing uh, for families out at the base and that's in conjunction with a ministry called Thanks to You Ministry it's spearheaded by, uh, by Dave Fox there's going to be a cornhole tournament um, as well for anyone who wants to win some gift cards it's just simply a way to say like hey we love NAS Lamore. 
We live in ASMR in a very tangible, very real way, um, and we're, we're so thankful that you guys are, are a part of our community. On the 22nd, we're cooking lunch for our CHP uh, as they're, uh, they're kind of switching shifts so we can do our best to feed as many of those, those people as possible just for us to have the opportunity to say we love first responders. We love our first responders in a very real, very real, tangible way. And then later on in the month, we're going to be taking lunch to a group of field workers, give them a bunch of gift cards, that sort of thing as a way of saying we love our ag community, right? You'll notice though that, that these four things, none of these things are very life-changing ways to say I love you. We're not paying off anybody's mortgage. We're not buying anybody a Tesla, right? We're not going to split uh, our winnings from, from the Mega Millions jackpot last week or anything. I'm just kidding. That, that would be awesome. Um, but we're, we're not doing anything that is going to be incredibly life-changing to anybody, right? But in order for us to show the love of Jesus... We don't have to do that. And I think we get stuck in our heads sometimes, right? In order to show Jesus' love to your family, to your friends, your coworkers, your teachers, your first responders, your doctors, right, your, your small business owner, people that you know, uh, in order to, to do that, you don't have to do these big life-changing things. It's actually funny. I was having a conversation with Bob Zumwalt. Bob's on our board, and um, I was talking with Bob uh, about this Love Where You Live series that comes up. I was actually talking with the whole board, and he was like, hey, Peter, when are you going to do, like, we love our lawyers? I was like, Bob, don't hold your breath, man. Like, that's not, it's not a thing that's going to happen. But if they are in your world, if they are in your relational world, absolutely, you should be doing things to serve these people. And it doesn't have to be life-changing. It simply needs to be thoughtful. And I think largely that's one of the, the difficult things for us to understand when it comes to service, is that serving doesn't have to be difficult, but oftentimes it is built up in our heads as something that is greater largely than it needs to be, right? We think, how could I possibly show my neighbors that I love them because Jesus loves me? I don't know figure out a tangible need and, and fill it. If you look at all of the things that we are doing in our community in the next couple of weeks, 100% of them involve food in some way. Why? Because I don't know about you, but every single day I wake up and I think to myself, I'm going to eat today. I probably think about it more often than I should, as a matter of fact, right? But that's a really very real tangible way to just go and just be like, hey, here's, I, I, I know you're going to eat today. Here's some, here's some food for, for eating, you know, I, my, my, my neighbor, as a matter of fact, and my neighbor doesn't even know Jesus, but he just went fishing uh, about six weeks ago or so. And so he comes over, he knocks on my door, and he, uh, he starts telling me about this awesome fishing trip that he did, and it was so great, and I fought this, whatever it was he was catching, like all of these things. And I don't fish, right? I don't, I, I don't think it's fun. I don't think it's interesting. I, I think it's boring. I'm like, you put a piece of metal on the end of a string and waited for something to bite it, right? I'm like, cool, man. So anyway, so he's telling me this story, and he's ex so excited about it, but I noticed he has something in his hand. So he finishes the story. He talks about his college-age daughter that he took with him. It's a bonding experience, right? All this stuff, and he's like, but we caught way too much fish, and just like, that's a humble brag right there, if I ever heard one from a fisherman, right? Like, we couldn't possibly eat everything I caught. Um, but he's like, we caught way too much fish, and um, he, he, knows, he knows that uh, uh, we have like a, a thinly veiled attempt at controlling chaos and appetites with our five boys in our house. And so because that is like, who could eat, who could eat a bunch of fish? Probably my next door neighbor. So he brought it over. 
make in order for us to make some some tacos for the boys and that sort of thing and even though he doesn't know Jesus even though he's not he's not a Christian that in in that simple act of generosity he looked a whole lot more like Jesus that day than a lot of us tend to do in this room and he doesn't even have a reason to do it outside of simply being a good neighbor that's it he he was like hey I know the Andersons have a thousand kids I'll give them some fish and they could feed those thousand, thousand kids. But then that question becomes then at that point, like I know Jesus as a Christian, I know Jesus has called me to be salt and to be light, to live in such a way the world recognizes Christ in me, but why should I do it? Why should I do it? Because if you look at the world in which we live, there really isn't a reason for us to do it. We live in a world, we live in a society that all people care about is number one. All people care about is like their selves and making sure that they are simply, they are simply uh, taken care of. If there's fame to be had, we will take it. If there is money to be given out, we will find it. I mean, just to pound this whole idea home, just last week there was a riot in New York. I don't know if anybody heard about this riot in New York, right? Um, but there was a riot in New York, and, and, and the reason it came about is because an internet streamer promised he was going to give out a PS5. If you don't know what a PS5 is, that's a video game console for the technological challenge in the room. But thousands, thousands of young people showed up, teenagers, young adults, or even a couple kids sprinkled in there. It was pandemonium. Because the streamer was like, hey, meet at this place at this specific time, and one of you guys is going to win a PS5. And thousands of people show up, and just pandemonium broke out. There were fights. People were injured. And on top of it, no one did anything to stop, like, this chaos, right? What did everybody do as soon as chaos ensued? I'm going to grab my phone and record this. Right, Because they pull their hand, put their hand in their pocket, they grab their cell phone, and they start to take video of it. And there's two things wrong here. One, riots broke out because of selfishness and the desire to get something that everybody wanted to get. They, wanted, they were simply looking out for number one. I want the PS5. But then when fights break out, everyone records it, and then what do they do? They immediately upload it onto social media for the world to see in hopes of catching a whole bunch of views so they can go viral and get some sort of clout from the entire thing. So even the people who weren't a part of the riots were still in the wrong at that point. This is the world in which we live. It is a world that is largely controlled by selfishness, where humility and deference and compassion and service have gone out the window. So the question then is, why serve? Paul has a very real reason why we should serve. It's going to be in Romans chapter 5. And so if you have your Bible, flip open to Romans chapter 5. If you have it on your device, you can click that open as well. But what you need to know about the book of Romans is this is Paul's magnum opus. Okay, Paul, as you're looking at this, this is his masterpiece. This is the Sistine Chapel as far as Paul's writings go. Okay, if you're not familiar with church, you're not familiar with Paul, Paul is the guy who wrote the majority of the New Testament. Okay, he wrote a whole bunch of things that are called epistles. Epistles are simply letters written by apostles. And so Paul penned a whole bunch of these. And oftentimes the words that he is going to use here in Romans chapter 5 are also echoed throughout a whole bunch of the different epistles that he wrote. But we're going to start in verse 6. This is what it says. It says, you see, at, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. 
Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have now received reconciliation. Okay, so why then, why should Christians serve? Why should we exercise compassion and deference and selflessness? Because even as you look at this passage, you're like, hold on, that says nothing about serving other people. Seems like a weird, a weird topic for us to kick off love where, love where you live. The short answer is to the question why Christians should serve is it's what Jesus did for us, that he served us in the first place. And so now it's our responsibility to serve others. But if we stop there with that answer, you guys all left, you guys would be pretty upset you got out of here 20 20 minutes early and got to lunch. So... The short, that's the short answer, but let's look at that a little bit and a little bit more in depth. Verse 6, so go back to your Bible. It's not going to be on the screen. Verse 6 starts back all the way at the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3, where we recognize that no one is good, not even one except Jesus. That's it. Because Adam and Eve, they broke this understanding that they have with God. God was like, hey, you can do anything you want in the garden. Just don't eat the fruit of the tree of, good, the tree of knowledge. Like, don't eat it. And then what do they do? They eat it, right? They're like toddlers unsupervised for like five minutes, right? So that's exactly what they do. Fall of man happens, and then all of a sudden we pick up in verse 6, and verse 6 then tells us that we were still powerless. Christ died for the ungodly. Who then are are the ungodly? Because it says Christ died for the ungodly. Well, verse 8 kind of echoes it a little bit. He says that, but, but verse 8 also has an interesting caveat to it. It doesn't, just say, it doesn't just say that what he did, it actually says why it is that he did it. So when we're talking about the ungodly with an understanding of Genesis chapter 3, an understanding of the, the condition of man, the sinful condition of man, that man is both guilty because of the fact that we are the offspring of Adam, but on top of that, we have a sin nature and we sin on a regular basis. We can see that what Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 5, verse 6 and verse 8 is the idea that man is sinful and Christ came to die for man. So who is sinful? All of us. Who is ungodly? All of us. Why then would God do that? Verse 8 tells us why he did it. It said God demonstrated his own love for us in this. That the reason that Christ came and died and suffered on a cross for all of us is why? Because God loves us. That's what verse 8 talks about. And he loves us and he came and he died even though most of us don't, didn't love him. Even though, even though everyone was sinful, even though he was getting nothing in re- return for it, he did it anyway. It even says in verse 7 how bad we were before we were redeemed. Like follow, follow my logic on this. Jesus died for anyone who would call upon his name, right? We see that in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believed in him shall not perish but have eternal life, right? So we are, we are sinful people, but Jesus died for anyone who would call on his name. We also understand that Romans 3.10 tells us that there is no one righteous, like I said, not even one except Jesus. That's it. No one is righteous. That means 
then that all of us are sinners. But then verse 7 says that no one would die for a righteous person. But it doesn't even matter because no one is righteous in the first place. Right? Paul here in Romans is hammering home the, the, the idea that there is no such thing as a righteous person that Jesus died for because there is no such thing as a righteous person. There is no such thing as someone who is good. So if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, you know what, there's this whole church thing and Jesus and God, and I don't know how I feel about it, but at the end of the day, I'm a pretty good person. Sorry, it's not how it works. Your theology is off. According to Scripture, if you believe what the Bible says, your theology at that point is then flawed. And there's no such thing as a righteous person, at least, at least before the acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord. Because then look at verse 9, right? Verse 9 tells us that we have been justified by his blood. And that's, a, that's kind of a a tough word, but it says, you've been justified by his blood. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? So justified, let's, let's hone in on this idea of justification for a second. Justification is the theological word for this word justified that's currently being used, used here. But simply, simply put, the definition of to justify is to simply say to declare righteous. That's what it means uh, in the Bible, to declare to declare righteous. Justification is an act of God, not of man, where he pronounces a sinner to be righteous because of that sinner's faith in Christ. That's where justification comes from. According to one theologian, and, and hear me on this, theologians can be pretty dense in their wording, but this is what he says. He says, the root idea of justification is the declaration of God, the righteous judge, So God is a righteous judge. The man who believes in Christ, sinful, though he may be, is righteous, is viewed as being righteous because in Christ he's come into a righteous relationship with God. So properly understood, justification has to do with God's declaration about the sinner. What God says about the sinner, not about the sinner specifically, not about any change within the sinner, as a matter of fact. Meaning, justification doesn't make anyone, anyone more holy with their actions. It simply declares them to not be guilty before God and therefore treated as holy. The actual change towards holiness in the sinner occurs through a process that we call sanctification, which is related to justification, but for the sake of the definition, it's distinct from it. So there's a really, really important passage when it comes to this idea of being justified, this idea of of coming to a saving faith in Christ so that when you die on this earth, you will be in heaven forever. Justification. It's Romans 3, 21 to 26. You still have your Bibles open? Flip back a couple pages to Romans chapter 3. This is what it says. It says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ, and I know this is beefy, so we're going to break it down in just a sec. But God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, 
He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Okay, so what's this saying? Justification. The idea of someone being made in right standing with God comes apart from the law. Okay, anytime the Bible says the law, it's talking about Old Testament law. It's talking about the Mosaic law, right? It's talking about the law that's handed down in Exodus. It's repeated in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, right? This is the law that's being talked about. It's called the Mosaic law. And so it's saying, hey, there is no justification apart from the law. We can't earn justification through rule keeping. We can't earn justification from our own good works. I don't care how philanthropic you are. I don't care how nice you are. I don't care how good of a person you are. I don't care how many people you bring into your home who are orphaned and need shelter. It does not matter when it comes to your eternal standing. That's what this is saying here. That good works don't justify you. The second thing that it's saying is justification is made possible only in the sacrificial death of Christ. It's based on the shed blood of Christ. Jesus had to come and die to endure the wrath of God. So we didn't have to. And the only way to do that was through his, his shed blood. But beyond that, justification is a free, it's a free thing. And it's a gracious gift that largely God gives to us who receive, that, receive it by faith through the sacrifice of Jesus. So you don't have to do anything for it. It's not on you. It is our responsibility to acknowledge Jesus as Lord, but we already recognize that Jesus is Lord regardless if you acknowledge it or not. But it is our responsibility to acknowledge him as such, and then beyond that, justification demonstrates the righteousness of God because nobody else can call you righteous. Nobody else can say that except God alone. Guys, I don't care how many times you did the dishes, your wife cannot declare you righteous. She can say you're nice, and she can be thankful for that. Okay, but that does not declare you righteous just because you do good things. So even though we are still sinners, our sin is now no longer held against us because we've been justified through Jesus' death on the cross as long as you acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. Okay, let's get out of the theology book. That was probably more for me than for you guys. Okay, let's get out of the, the theology book, though. Get into verse 11 from our original passage in Romans chapter 5. Um, it says, not only is this so, so that part, not only is this so, he's talking about not only are we justified and reconciled to God forever because of Jesus. So not only that, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received reconciliation. Reconciliation to who? To God. So let's break that down in a little bit. The question we need to answer here with this is, so what should our response be to what Jesus did? What should we do about that now? Well, according to verse 11, boast in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it says. So now, because all of these things happen, now we get to boast in the Lord and we don't get to boast in ourselves. And it's not oftentimes that we see boasting as something that is encouraged, right? After all, boasting is usually full of arrogance and pride and kind of come across as annoying, However, in this scripture, Paul encourages boasting. 
He doesn't encourage just any boasting. He encourages boasting in the Lord. Boasting in the Lord is not the same as someone boasting about their new car or boasting about their good grades or boasting about their achievements. Boasting in the Lord allows us and involves us to give glory, to give praise, to give honor to God for who he is and the good things that he has done. Boasting in the Lord, it is not self-seeking. It is not self-gratifying. Boasting in the Lord is centered around God who deserves everything, who deserves all glory and all praise from our lips. So because we were sinners and because of the fact that Jesus died for us, how much more then should we be willing to die to ourselves and serve those people who are in our oikos, who are in our relational, relational world? How often should we do that? Because I think as Christians, we're like, okay, well, I served somebody this week. I'm good. I'm going to continue with my life. How often should we do that? as often as you're able, is the answer. As often as you are able to, we should serve other people for the sake of the gospel. Why? Because God is the source of our compassion. And as such, we should serve because Jesus served us first. When we talk about the idea of loving where you live, we're talking about the the, the recognition of Jesus' sacrifice for our sake and our response to it. So when I say this is kind of a weird passage to kick off love where you live, we have to understand where we came from in the first place. That we came from sin. We came from a spiritual death. And Jesus came and put us in right standing with God. So if he was willing to do that, what is it then that we should be willing to do? We should love where we live, not just in word, but in deed as well. Because God didn't just tell Jesus he was coming. Or tell Jesus, hey Jesus, go... You're, you're going to go down to earth and you're going to hang out with all those humans. He didn't just say that. It actually was followed through with, right? He did, God didn't just promise Jesus to us with the law and with the prophets. It actually happened. He actually stood on the promise that he made to all of humanity at one point. He actually followed through. See, the problem oftentimes with the church is that every one of us who acknowledges Jesus as Lord agrees in their head that the right thing to do is to serve people and to serve them well. Right? All of us who would say, yep, I agree with that because Jesus loves me, I should love other people. That's not the issue. It's not an understanding deal. It's not like we're going through some dense theology here that you can't get. All of us understand the problem is it's getting our head knowledge down into this this heart region down here and actually doing what it is that we say that we believe. And for a lot of us in here, there's a disconnect between the two. And I get it, right? We live in a world that tells us, hey, look out for number one. Take care of yourself. Don't worry about serving other people. I think that's part of it. But honestly, I think think the bigger bigger issue, the main reason for this is that we oftentimes just forget what the church is about. We forget what the calling is that we have on our life. And hear me, the calling isn't to serve people. And I know that may have just confused you because you're telling me to go serve people. That's not the calling of the church. We're not in the business of church to shape morality, but it's a byproduct. We're in the business of the church for social justice, but oftentimes justice is 
a byproduct. We're in the business of the church for egotistical reasons and to pat ourselves on the back and say, look what we did. Look at the kingdom that I've grown here, God, but it's my kingdom. It's not yours. We're not, we're, we're, we don't do church for it. We're in the business of being the church because we want to love God to the best of our ability. That's why we're in the business of being the church. I would guess there are people in here who may have preconceived notions about the church, oftentimes negative preconceived notions about the church. And some of them are merited. Like I get that. And they tell you the church is all about, it's all about themselves. The church is about getting people out of poverty. The church is about making bad people good again. The truth is, is none of these things are the case. This is not why we are the church. We're in the, business of, we're in the business of doing church because we love God and we want other people to be able to experience his love as well. That's why we're in the business of being the church. And while we fail at that pursuit every single day, and I'll be the first to admit that I fail at this pursuit every single day, that's our goal and that's our intention is to make, God's, make God well known, make Jesus famous, So people can be a part of the kingdom of God and understand the kingdom of God. The church is God's plan A for the world, right? I say that all the time. The church is God's plan A for the world. And the best way to get people, to get others to understand that it is is for us to stand in the gap between the preconceived notions of those who don't know Jesus and those who have found a saving faith by serving them out of love because Jesus served us first. Then we recognize there are people who are sinful, and that's all of us, but there are people who have not acknowledged Jesus as their Savior, and there's the kingdom of God, and there just tends to be this gap in between here. Is how do we get people who don't understand what Jesus did for them over here? How do we do that? That's the church's then responsibility to stand in the gap and love them well. And when conversations begin to happen about why are you doing this or who are you or what, like, what do you do? You just say, hey, look, I love you, right? I'm a Christian. I'm called to serve. I want to serve. Here you go. Pathway from someone who does not know who God is into the kingdom of God. I'll, I'll close with this. There's, there's this amazing true story, right, about a guy by the name of, um, of, of Maximilian Kolbe. He's a Polish friar. Some of you probably heard of it. Those of you who are big Polish friar historians have probably heard about this guy before. Uh, but his name's Maximilian Kolbe. Polish friar specifically during, during World War II. Right? We understand back in World War II, Nazis are causing havoc. They're trying to take over the world. They've got these, these, these concentration camps. They're killing Jews, like all of the, all of the different things. But Max, he's a, he's a devout Christ, Christian. And while all this was going on, he didn't just sit back and watch as kind of bad stuff unraveled. He actually helped out a bunch of Jewish people who were in danger because of the Nazis. So he gave them shelter. He gave them support. Seriously risky business at this point in time. But he didn't care, right? He thought the right thing to do was to serve people well. Well, the Nazis, they eventually caught on to what Max was up to. And so they arrest Max and they send him to a little place called Auschwitz. Most of us know Auschwitz, probably the most famous concentration camp, a death camp. People largely went there specifically to to die. But this is where things get even more incredible for our Polish friar. He says one day, or it said one day a, a prisoner managed to escape from Auschwitz. And 
the, the guards there couldn't find the prisoner. He was, he was long gone, but they wanted to make sure that nobody else tried this again. And so they picked, they handpicked 10 people who were also, who were going to die now because of what this other person did. And so as they're in this lineup of, uh, of 10, 10 people, one of the guys, he just starts weeping uncontrollably. And he says, please, don't, don't let it be me. And I got a wife, I got kids, he's clinging on to hope. And he just, he just, he is just, he is complete, he's begging the guards at this point. And so Max steps in and he goes right up to the guards and he says, hey, I'll, I'll take his place. I'll step, I'll step into his place. Like he volunteered to die instead of this other person. So they let Max switch places. He's thrown into this cell. It's called a starvation cell. Um, And even in that terrible situation, Max still at this point, he doesn't lose his faith. And so he's in there with these nine other guys and he's praying with them and he's talking to Jesus about, about these guys and he's giving them hope when they're facing the worst kind of misery. And after about two weeks, Max is the only one left alive. All nine of them at that point are dead. So the guards decided to speed things up. And so they ended up giving Max a lethal injection. He passed away on August 14th, 1941. Maximilian Colby, his story sounds like something out of a superhero movie. And I get it. We hear stuff like this and we think to ourselves, I'm never going to have to do that. Like I don't live in 1940s Germany. I don't have to deal with it. Like I live in Western Christianity. How is it that Max's story can, can translate overall? I wish we could do some of this stuff for other people, and largely we do. But, but hear me on this, is that when you serve other people, it doesn't have to be simply picking them out of a lineup and saying, I'll take your spot to die instead. And we've built it up in our heads to believe that somehow. That service has to be like this massive, grandiose thing. And if you don't do it, if, if it's not that big, it's probably simply, simply not, not worth doing. Max, he's able to see that sacrifice, sacrifice that should be made for others because of Christ's sacrifice for us. I mean, it's literally embodying what Jesus did for us, but on a physical level, not a spiritual level, where he says, hey, I'm going to step in and take death, your death, onto me so you don't have to deal with it. Now, obviously, that other prisoner eventually passed away, either during the Holocaust or as an, as an old man. We don't know. But we recognize that Max simply saw a need, and he filled the need. Church, as we're talking about this idea of service and talking about this idea of loving where we live, I'm not asking you to go step into death for somebody else unless you're called to do so. I'm simply asking for us as a church to see a need and fill that need. Make it lunch, make it breakfast, make it a date night for some couples out there. Say, hey, I'll watch the kids for you. You guys go, connect. I know you haven't for a long time. Go and pray with people. I mean, the least we could do. I know that I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to say the most you can do is pray, but the least you can do is just shoot a text to somebody and say, how can I be praying for you today? And pray for them, even if they don't know who Jesus is. Our responsibility as a church, our responsibility as as a group 
of people is look what you can do for others and then do it. And specifically, as verse 11 says, while boasting in Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we, man, I'm, I'm really thankful for your son. And I'm really thankful for his blood and his death. And Father, it even seems, sounds weird saying that. I'm not happy Jesus had to die, but I'm thankful that he did. Because apart from him, I'm ungodly and I'm lost and I'm not justified to you. And I don't begin the process of becoming more holy. All of that starts with the blood of your son. So Father, thank you. Thank you for his blood. And Father, I pray as a church that we would come to recognize that because of the way that he sacrificed for us, because of his service to humanity, that we've now been justified. And now that we're justified, Father, we should do our best to stand in the gap between those people who don't know who you are and your kingdom. To show compassion to those people because you're our source of compassion. And Father, this morning, even with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, Father, this morning, if nobody has heard, if there's somebody in this room who hasn't heard about that idea of being justified, that you no longer count me as unrighteous, you count me as holy even though I'm not, if there's people in here who have not yet acknowledged Jesus as Lord, you can simply pray after me. Say, Father, A, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. that I have fallen short of your standard. All of us have. But B, I believe that you sent your son to die on a cross for me, to be justified. And C, that I would choose to follow you every single way. Not out of selfishness and not just as a get out of jail free card, Father but so I can serve you to the best of my ability so other people can know who you are. We love you, Father. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.